On this episode of This Week in Linux, we check out some distro news from Peppermint OS, Arco Linux, LunOS, and IP Fire. We got a couple apps to talk about like Nextcloud and a new wallpaper tool that has quite a bit of potential. We'll take a look at what is to come with the next version of KDE Plasma. Intel users have gotten some more bad news regarding their new security vulnerability. Later in the show, we'll cover some interesting information regarding a couple governments saying, saving money by switching to Linux. Then finally, we'll check out some Linux gaming news. And all that and much more coming up. I'm Michael Tanel with Tux Digital, and this is your weekly source for Linux news. Before we get started, I just want to make a quick announcement that uh, I'll be at the Southeast Linux Fest conference that's coming up in June. It'll be happening between June 14th and the 16th. This is a Linux conference that is like a kind of a, it's an interesting conference because it, it does have talks and it has keynotes and that kind of thing, but also it has um, like a lot of social aspects to it. There's even parties that happen at the end of each day. So uh, that's pretty cool if you're wanting to check it out. Uh, I'll be there giving some a couple talks at Self as long, uh, Noah uh, of Destination Linux and Ask Noah Show will also be giving some talks. And uh, the rest of the DL crew, Ryan and Zeb, will also be at Self this year. So definitely if you're interested or in, in you're in the area, you should totally come check it out. Uh, it's free to attend as far as getting into the venue. Uh, but uh, you you know the travel expenses and that kind of thing you know there's there's that maybe depending on how far you have to come, um, but uh, I'll be at Self this this year and we'll be doing some meetups as well as we'll be doing a live recording of Destination Linux at Self, and I will probably be doing something with this week in Linux at Self in some aspect. I, will, I probably won't do it live just because of the timing of it, uh, but I will probably be doing something you know. Somehow, I haven't decided what I'm going to do for this show on there, but something. Uh, but we will be doing a live for Destination Linux, so if you want to, uh, you know, come and watch it live and hang out and do uh, go to the meetup, uh, that'd be great too. Uh, you will June 14th through the 16th, southeastlinuxfest.org. A version of the show this week is there's a new vulnerability for Intel users. It's called Zombie Load. It is a microarchitectural data sampling vulnerability. So, you know, seems another exploit is out that impacts Intel and not AMD. Uh, apparently, a Intel is, you know, just rampant with these at this point. But Zombie Load is a side channel attack that allows hackers to retrieve data being processed inside the CPU. So, it's kind of like Spectre and Meltdown in a way. But uh, Zombie Load takes advantage of the speculative execution process in a different way than the other ones do. And it impacts every CPU from Intel starting from 2011. So all of the, all of the, the CPUs since then are all affected. The exploit is running at hardware level, it, and it can overcome privacy barriers users may have set up due to this hardware level issue. The only good news about this is... Intel's already released mitigations for the vulnerability, um, but they also have another caveat in the fact that they have some performance pro uh, costs. So Pharonix has been doing benchmarks on the mitigation patch, and it's been showing measurable performance hits in every benchmark that he's run on the this these mitigations. You can check uh, Pharonix for updated impacts uh, throughout the week or so, because you know for the past few days or so he's been doing testing in a variety of different ways. 
Uh, one thing that was interesting is that the gaming is not really affected by this issue, but other things are heavily affected in a variety of ways. And some things are not super affected, but they're also they, they've said that, that one su- suggestion would be to turn off hyper-threading would allow you to have uh, another benefit of the security having a mitigation without hyper-threading on. However, to point out that the one of the reasons why Intel's has a good performance in the past is because of the hyper-threading. So if you turn off hyper-threading in Intel, it's kind of like, what's the point of having Intel, right? So... Uh, interesting enough is that Mac users actually Mac users are hit the most on this particular thing because they were hit by like up to forty percent of performance la- loss on just using their computer overall. So that's uh, that's unfortunate for them. We're not at the forty percent level, but it's still not good because it is significant performance issues. And when you combine that with the Spectre and Meltdown issues, there's some significant hits and. Uh, interesting enough, if you're an AMD user, AMD CPU, only Spectre is actually affected for AMD, and also not full, not all of Spectre is affected. So no meltdown and no zombie load for AMD users. So I have decided that my next CPU will be an AMD CPU because at this point, I bet there's probably three more of these coming out for Intel based on this track record. But anyway. You know, it's also kind of funny that there was actually a recent kind of, a little bit of hype around a new distro. Not new, but new as in new new uh, trending distro called Clear Linux, created by Intel. And I saw some people saying AMD should take their, take the, um, you know, their initiative and make a distro specifically for their hardware. And that kind of made me you know, smirk a little bit because sure, Clear Linux is designed to be the best optimal usage for their hardware. But AMD's focus is making hardware that's not susceptible to all these broken, weird vulnerabilities. And therefore, I'd rather have that. (laughs) So, and also the fact that AMD's um, got all their stuff in the kernel and everything as well for both the GPU and the CPU. So you have better experience with using AMD hardware at this point. Now, NVIDIA versus AMD, that's that's uh, definitely debatable, of course. But at this point, Intel's giving no reason to use their hardware. Let's move on to some good news, because there's plenty of that in this episode. Up next in the show is NextCloud 16 has been released. NextCloud 16 is now out and introducing a powerful new feature, machine learning, which is pretty interesting because the machine learning is being used for security and allows for detection of suspicious logins. Additionally, it will be leveraged to offer recommendations to help users find what they're looking for as far as like uh, act, like files you know, based on your track record of using the system and like what files you open uh, most often and that kind of thing. They also uh, have added access control lists or ACLs in group folders allowing admins to fine-tune control over who has access and to what. So, and you could have spe- specific controls over a folder allowing multiple people to get, get into a folder, but then also have control over different files inside of those folders so that only the people you want to have access to this stuff could get access. So that's pretty cool. They also have a new privacy center that lets users see where their data is and who is accessing it which is awesome because you have, I don't know if it's real time. I haven't tested it yet, 
but it looks like a fantastic feature if if it, whether it's real time or not but if it was real time that'd be much better um nextcloud is probably the go-to solution for replacing services like google drive and google docs if you've never heard of it before also kind of it's a replacement for dropbox and that kind of thing uh, as well as like calendar and contacts and all that it's a really cool uh, application and solution and with this machine learning structure it could make it so much better depending on how, how well this works out for the security and the usability improvements for like and also where it stores this information because they haven't really said so but i'm pretty sure it stores on your own uh your own setup but i couldn't find the actual details for that one just just yet uh in the future i'll mention i'll do a touch up on that topic if necessary but uh, anyway nextcloud 16 is really cool and it's available right now up next in the show is peppermint 10 has been released Peppermint is an interesting uh, distribution because they have a combination of various different, uh, you know, good things from different aspects of Linux. So, for example, they merge various different components between XFCE and LXDE uh, desktop environments, as well as they have some stuff from Lubuntu, some stuff from um, Linux Mint, and they kind of merge different things together. And they also create their own unique stuff as well. So it's really cool because this particular one is based on 1804 LTS, and it it's using the hardware and element stack. Uh, so it's it's got the kernel 4.18 instead of the the 4.15 that came with the Ubuntu 1804 release. It has 4.18 because that is the one that's available in the hardware and element stack, and it will also be getting the 5.0 kernel that's available in 1904 as soon as Ubuntu pushes that to the stack. Or the enable hardware enablement stack. So they're been the peppermint's also benefiting from getting that stuff too. So that is very cool. Uh, they've also uh, implemented the uh, the thing that 1804 did with that proprietary NVIDIA graphics driver installer. So when you click the install third party drivers software stuff, it will automatically detect if you have NVIDIA driver or NVIDIA card to automatically install those drivers now. So it, they're benefiting from that as well with this new upgrade. So that's awesome. But there's one thing that's really cool about Peppermint is they have this ICE system. And ICE is uh, a single session browser that uh, it's a structure to create web apps that are desktop based web apps. So it's essentially kind of like taking a, an app, a website and turning it into a desktop app, but sort of not exactly, you know. But the reason why it's cool is because it also has like integration with. Uh, you can customize it really easily. You can change the icon. You can change. Like you can get notifications with the desktop. You can get. Uh, you can use different browsers to implement this structure. And this particular update is really good because, for a long time, you could have been. You could have chosen Chromium, Chrome, or Firefox. However, Firefox was the only one that allowed you to have isolated profiles um, for those SSBs, and you couldn't do it with the other browsers. However, they have now added Vivaldi as well to those that browser list, and they've made it possible to have isolated profiles for Chromium, Chrome, and Vivaldi. Uh, it is pretty cool. The ICE structure is a really interesting idea, and it is available in other distros. Some people have ported it to other distros, like Arch has it for sure. I don't know if how many other ones would have it, but it is a pretty cool idea. So if you've never tried Peppermint at all, it's definitely worth a shot. And especially with Peppermint 10, you have a, like a lot of benefits from it. Uh, we, even when, with the hardware element stack, the, the having third-party drivers easily accessed, getting SSBs, 
it's a lot of things to check out and i think that it's uh it's definitely worth giving it a shot so if you want to learn more about peppermint 10 i have a link to it in the show notes up next in the show is the beta release for kde plasma 5.16 we're going to cover a lot more in depth in the future when 5.16 comes out but i wanted to cover the like the latest stuff because there are some very interesting things like at a you know top level and for interesting I don't want to cover it before we get to the actual like in-depth release in a future episode. So first of all, the there's some new settings uh, customizations for the color scheme and the window decoration pages. So they've been redesigned to be um, more consistent and it just look better. But what's really cool is they now have it. Able, it gives you the ability to filter uh, your themes by light, light, dark, light themes and dark themes, it makes it a lot easier to you know find out which one you want. Like or if a, a a particular theme supports light or dark. They also made it so that Plasma Network Manager now is compatible with WireGuard, which is awesome. They've also uh, made it improve the support and reliability for app images uh, inside of Discover so that you can now uh, install applications or app images from store.kde.org directly inside of Discover. And there's been a lot of stuff on the desktop management side of it. So Plasma Vaults can now be locked and unlocked directly from Dolphin. They've improved the structure for the Plasma theme switching. So it's more consistent and, and it brings in more of the, like it switches more components at, like without having to do much effort. You just choose a different theme and it would just move more, off, more stuff and much, much more cleaner. So that's really cool. They also have done a really interesting thing uh, with the the show alternative section. So like you can now go into the panel edit mode and then right click an individual widget and it will show you alternatives to those widgets that are also available for Plasma. So that is awesome because there's a lot of widgets available that people aren't aware that they exist. Many of which are just by default available in Plasma, but there's also a ton that are in the, the KDE store. So that is a really cool addition. And I hope I haven't actually tried that out yet, but I look forward to seeing how they're going to implement that because that has a lot of potential. Also, uh, they've also made an improvement to the system tray, so that if you are if an app is recording audio, a microphone icon will appear in the system tray, which allows for the like changing and muting the volume with like a middle click or the mouse wheel, uh, much easier. So if you are wanting to take a break from recording a podcast for example you could just click that button and then do so like i could have just done right here instead of having filler words like this anyway the uh most important thing so far i think is the completely rewritten notification system that has a lot of improvements one of the things that they added was the do not disturb mode they also added a more intelligent history structure by grouping different uh, notifications together. So if you get notifications from like specific applications, it will group them all together. Or if you get notifications from KDE Connect, it will group them that way. Uh, a lot of different improvements to that. They've also made it where critical notifications are able to be going through full screen apps. So uh, this makes it possible that if you're using a full screen and it's like a critical notification that you need to get, it will still display to you. So, or you can choose to have it display to you, not necessarily force it or anything. Um, because you know, plasma doesn't force stuff, but anyway, there's a ton of other things that are available and we'll go much more in depth in the next episode, the next episode we cover plasma on it or KDE plasma 5.16. But for now, if you would like to check out the beta, I have a link to their blog post in the show notes.
Up next in the show is the latest release of IP Fire Firewall. This is version 2.23 core update 131. This particular release has a lot of bug fixes and performance improvements. Uh, there's a couple things I wanted to talk about specifically. First of all, they have SSH agent forwarding. This now can be enabled uh, on the IP Fire SSH service, which allows administrators to connect to the firewall and use SSH agent authentication when using the IP Fire as a bastion host and connecting to other internal servers. There's also a new intrusion prevention system. And this is pretty cool because they've actually replaced the existing system, which was called Snort, and they've replaced it with Suricata. I'm not really sure how to say it, but I'm going to guess it's Suricata. So uh, this changes the way they do the, the prevention's, uh, intrusion prevention by uh, it now deeply inspects packets and prevents threats, uh, making your network more secure. And uh, the developer of IPFire says this in this in the announcement says the the new system has many advantages over the old one in terms of performance, security, and simply put, more modern. We would like to thank the team at Siricata on which it is based for their hard work in creating such an important tool that is now working inside of IPFire. So that is pretty cool, cool because they're doing like a collaboration with Siricata uh, as to implement it and. Uh, if you haven't checked it out, IP Fire is a really good firewall distribution that you might want to you know, give it a shot. I'll have a link to this latest blog post in the show notes below. Up next in the show is the latest release of Arco Linux, which is 19.5. There's a lot of stuff in this one. Like They've, they've been doing releases for the past, uh, about every month or so they've been making new releases. And there's a lot of stuff that's coming to this latest version that's it's interesting. Uh, but uh, for the most part, it's mostly maintenance improvements and bug fixes and that kind of thing. But they do a lot of customization through a lot of different desktop environments and window managers. So um, one of the things that's actually kind of a little negative is that uh, Arco Linux B is the branch of Arco Linux that has pre-made uh, community-ran distros or, or ISOs, and they've decided to eliminate those distros like are those isos and focus more on the built the like development in the the learning through building your own system because uh, arco linux is kind of like a learning tool for linux so you, they they kind of give you like a like multiple phases so you have the phase 1 which is just get arco linux and installs and has the defaults of how they want how they want to use it and then they also kind of give you like a smaller one where you can get a you know kind of dabble into creating your own ISO, and then they have another one which is like much more bare bones, where you're, you know, you're in phase three, you're actually building the system much more closely rather than using the scripts. So it's it's an interesting approach because their purpose is to have a good distro, but also at the same time be a learning distro, and it's a it's a it's a distribution based off of Arch Linux. So there's also a benefit to using the Arch as a, a learning platform because you can do that with just Arch itself. So there's a lot of interesting and cool things about Arco Linux. We actually have uh, Destination Linux uh, did a, an interview with the developer of Arco Linux, Eric Dubois, uh, quite a few episodes ago. Uh, I'll have a link to that in the show notes if you'd like to check it out. But uh, it's pretty interesting distro. However, this latest version, they have announced that they're no longer going to be doing as many ISOs because they currently, at the time, they had 13 different uh, desktop environments or window managers as options for these ISOs. 
which also meant they had different architectures because they had, uh, I think they had 32-bit and 64-bit, and that meant they had 26 ISOs to maintain and test and all that stuff. So they decided to uh, do away with all of those and make it more about the learning again. So it's interesting, uh, but at the same time, if you were using those, that might be a negative, but at the same time, I think the majority of, like the biggest benefit of Arco is the learning aspect of it. So I think it's overall a decent thing. So there's also been a lot of updates to like Calamares and a bunch of other stuff, as well as like the customizations they've done to OpenBox and i3 and Awesome and a bunch of other things. Uh, so if you're interested in checking it out, I'll have a link to 19.5 of Arco Linux in the show notes. Up next in the show is some interesting information about some different government institutions that are implementing uh, Linux in a variety of different ways from various governments. Uh, and first up, we're going to talk about the Indian an Indian state called uh, Kerala. Uh, I think that uh, psh, I butchered that for sure. I know I did. Anyway, they've decided they uh, to switch to Linux, and they've also found to, that they've saved a lot of money. They the schools are expected to save uh, roughly three thousand. Crore, that's totally wrong. I don't. I'm sorry. And it, but in in USD uh, terms, that's actually converted to 428 million dollars. So that's a pretty good move. If you're going to save that much money by switching to Linux, I mean that's you. You definitely should do so. Uh, this is also really interesting because they have a strong education policy in this uh, district, and they've also set up mandatory IT classes. Um, for all of the kids in the school. So they're able to learn Linux now because they're Im- implementing it Linux everywhere for the youth, for the t- every teacher will be trained on Linux and the educational software so that they can teach the kids as well as, you know, in these IT classes as well as just using the, the software in general. They, the savings comes from the ditching all the licensing fees that they say amounted to $50 million per, $50 million per year. The vice chairman had this to say, if you had gone for applications of proprietary nature, if we had gone, you know, each computer would have incurred at least 1.5 lock, I don't know, or two, $2,200 in licensing fees. So there's, there's definitely a lot of reasons to drop windows, but you know, this is a, one of the best reasons is the money. So if you can save for over $400 million, it's a pretty easy decision. Anyway, it's it's really interesting to see what happens with the other neighboring states to see if they would actually, you know, t- take the uh, example and do it. So it's pretty interesting to see, and uh, I can't wait to, to, you know, see more of this happening. In fact, we don't have to wait that long because the next topic is something also very similar. In other Windows Schmindos news, South Korea government has announced that they are planning the Linux migration. They're, they're actually saying that they're doing it as the Windows 7 support ends, so next year, essentially. Uh, while the initial cost of transitioning to Linux-based hardware will cost $655 million, they anticipate they will still be have significant savings long-term with the licensing fees, and they will not be reliant on a single OS. So they could use you know multiple different variation, versions of Linux based on what they need to use it for. What naturally, because one of their best reasons of Linux is that particular thing of choice and tailoring it specifically to the hardware that you're going to use it on. So interestingly enough, there are many organizations like the South Korean government that are still on Windows 7, which only has one year of support left. So this transition is maybe like a prime 
time for this to happen for a lot of different places. So if you are involved in some kind of institution or in some kind of organization that has this kind of situation where they're still on Windows 7 and are looking at you know, the deadline of support for Windows 7, then you might be able to convince them in a much easier way to try out Linux or at least to do a test bed of Linux versus Windows to see if they could benefit by switching, you know, recouping various different costs like licensing fees and all that. So South Korea decides or decided that they think that they can. So, you know, might be worth checking out for other people. Anyway, if you'd like to learn more about this particular news, I'll have a link to the South Korean government uh, uh, Linux migration as well as topic previously where we talked about the Indian states uh, school switching over. So, yeah, I'll have a link to both of those in the show notes. Up next in the show is a really interesting wallpaper app called Super Paper. They've released 1.1.1 this week, and it is an interesting wallpaper manager that has a ton of really cool features, and it also has a nice uh, GUI and user experience uh, structure that you, you there are there is some little bit of a caveat to it in a sec, I'll get to in a second, but uh, first of all, let's talk about the features it has. First, it allows you to set a single image across all displays, set different images on every display. Uh, you can have per pixel per inch correction, so you can span an image flawlessly across different displays of different shapes and sizes, regardless of what the resolution is. It will uh, automatically move, like it'll basically check out what the image is and then like kind of cut it up and move it around based on the the resolutions that you have provided on your monitors. So it's it's really cool idea because it automatically does this kind of cropping and setting up everything so that no matter your like if you look in the video version of this particular episode there is a horizontal monitor and a vertical monitor right beside each other and you can see that the wallpaper has nicely been nicely um, like cut between the two and in most cases doing that would be awful uh, if you do like manually or in most DEs don't really support that uh, level of control so this is a pretty cool uh, app, uh, application just because of that concept and they also have bezel correction so if you have really big bezels it kind of like tries to compensate for that in some ways so that's really cool it has a lot of stuff like a tra uh, tray applet for slideshow controls if you wanted to move your you know change your wallpaper uh, more often than uh, a lot of people do like if you want to have like every 10 minutes or so you want to change it can do that and in theory, also automatically adjust based on whatever your orientation is. So that's pretty cool. They have, they also have like hotkey support for the slideshow control and all this. So it's, it's a really interesting uh, piece of software and has a lot of potential. Uh, unfortunately, I could only find an, an, a build for Arch Linux and also the source code to compile it yourself. I couldn't find builds for most distros. So maybe they're just working on the functionality and that they'll then package it for other distros, you know, in the future. But uh, I think if this was available on all the distros, this would be a really, really cool solution because it has a ton of potential. And um, if you do happen to use Arch Linux or are okay with compiling it yourself, I have a link to those in the show notes below. Up next in the show is LunaOS running on a, a PinePhone dev kit. This is really cool because this video is essentially showing off LunaOS uh, using the accelerated graphics enabled for the Pine Kits, uh, the Pine Phones dev kit, and this is very cool because it also looks it looks very snappy and responsive, 
based on how it's you know the interface is working. And if you're not aware, Luna OS is a Linux-based mobile phone operating system, and it also works on tablets as well. But the reason why it's as cool is because Luna OS is a port of WebOS. WebOS is a dist is an operating system that was created eh, about ten years ago now, actually, and it was okay. My favorite operating system for the phone ever. It was way better than Android. It was way better than everything. It was also based on Linux, like a legit, genuine Linux operating system, not just like this weird Android uh, Frankenstein thing. It actually was uh, a Linux-based operating system, and they also had a lot of open source tools inside of the system. They used a lot of open source technologies like web stuff for applications and all kinds of things. So it was a really, really good operating system that was handled and managed by a company that fell on its face because they made very bad marketing decisions and bad uh, business deals and stuff like that. So WebOS essentially died. It was sold, Palm itself was sold to HP, which was then, so they then, HP then kind of fumbled the ball on WebOS as well. And the guy who wanted to ship the uh, WebOS as part of their their various devices then got fired. And they had a new CEO come in, and they tried to, they just decided to get rid of WebOS completely and sell it to LG. And then LG turned it into a, a TV system. And anyway, LunaOS has a lot of potential because it has the benefit of being WebOS, but at the same time being a community-ran port of webOS. So that's why I put it in the show because I'm a big fan of webOS and I'm glad that it is still being maintained even if it is in a port version because um, it has so much potential and I I look forward to the day that I will be able to use webOS or LunaOS again because uh, the operating system was great. Uh, just for quick note, if you're curious about what I said about the marketing, uh, webOS or Palm showed off this was by the way but this was back then when android didn't have the ability to multitask but webos did and palm showed out how they did the multitasking a year before the phone was actually available to be used so during the process of the time where they announced it at ces and then the phone actually became available android had stolen their ideas so that's just you know bad marketing you're going to talk about something that's innovative and really cool but not let people have it for a year. So yeah, that makes sense why they didn't survive that. Anyway, if you'd like to learn more about LunaOS, I'll have a link to it in the show notes below. Up next in the show is some gaming news from Valve to start off. Uh, Valve issued some updates for SteamOS, Steam Client Beta, and Proton. So first off, we're talking about SteamOS. There's a lot of uh, security updates and improvements to their firmware, their non-free updates. They've also updated their Mesa drivers to 18.3.4, the NVIDIA drivers, as well as some other security updates. Then we're going to move on to the Steam client. That's, this is a recent update. It's in the beta still right now, but one of the updates is really cool in that they've actually renamed the in-home streaming structure to Steam Remote Play. Because now, instead of just requiring you to be at home, you can now stream games to other any other client, both inside and outside of your home. Um, the next interesting bit is that Vulkan, 
uh, have they have reworked their shader system so it's now capable of downloading and pre-compiling the whole collection of Vulkan pipelines for games. So this will make it possible for like the date the shader data downloads in Steam and pre-compiling will be enabled in like uh, a much faster much will make make the Vulkan rendering a much cleaner thing which would improve not only just native Vulkan games but also could improve the functionality of Steam Play and Proton. And speaking of Proton, Valve also add, uh, updated the, pro, the latest version of Proton with 4.2-4. This updates DXVK to 1.1.1, which is the latest version. Uh, they've also improved like some I, the better icons, and they fixed uh, controller detection in some games, and they fixed some uh, issues that Wine uh, was getting stuck on for depending on when you're upgrading Proton to a newer version. But it's also worth noting that due to all of this work, from Valve, which, thank you Valve, by the way, and all the work from co-weavers and wine team working on Proton, the ProtonDB website, ProtonDB.com, is now reporting that over 5,000 games work with Proton on Linux. They currently list 5,006 games as of this recording, and that is awesome. I don't really know exactly which ones are gold, how many are gold, and how many are platinum, but the fact that there's 5,000 games on Proton... Uh, thanks to Proton, where before that we didn't have as many, and now we used to have like, I think a total was like 5,000 games in ten, in general on Linux, and thanks to Proton, we've now doubled it within within like less than a year. Like, because I think the I think it was August that Proton was announced, so it hasn't even been a year yet, and it's already doubled the amount of games. That shows that Proton is a fantastic improvement to the ecosystem. So yes. Uh, thanks to all the people that are working on it, and uh, I can't wait to see what's happening with the new Vulkan support with this, the, you know, the shader stuff to make Proton even better. And also, there's more uh, companies that are you know, are getting interested in uh, Proton because of all this stuff, and and also Vulkan because of all this stuff. So that's awesome. If you have to learn more about this, I'll have a link to the Gaming on Linux article in the show notes. Up next in the show is some really interesting information, not necessarily Linux-related, but potentially could be and could benefit Linux in some ways, depending. We'll see, because it's it's like a 50-50, I guess. But Sony and Microsoft have announced a strategic partnership where they're going to collaborate on new cloud-based solutions for gaming experiences and AI solutions. The two companies will partner on new innovations to enhance customer experiences in their direct-to-customer or to-consumer entertainment platforms and AI solutions. These two companies will explore joint development of future cloud solutions in Microsoft Azure to support their respective game and content streaming services. This I don't know why they say it like this. This is text writ- taken directly from Microsoft's blog, and they talk about Microsoft and Sony and like th- like this weird third person thing. So like these two companies. And anyway, um, so anyway, in, in addition to this, they are also going to be doing. Um, using the Microsoft Azure data center solutions for Sony's game and content streaming services, as well as uh, Sony's going to allow Microsoft to use like semiconductor and their um, intelligent image sensor solutions and stuff with their stuff. So it's really interesting because now you might be thinking, why do we care? One, it's interesting that they're even doing a partnership because they, you know, if they've been known to hate each other for, you know, decades, uh, especially with the console wars, Azure heavily uses Linux, like 
Azure Sphere is specifically a Linux-based distribution that power is powered by Azure and like IoT stuff. Then also Microsoft Azure is like 51 or so percent Linux powered. They do have Windows nonsense stuff, of course, because it's Microsoft. But the reason why this is potential but interesting because this is essentially a competitor to Google Stadia. And Google Stadia is the uh, gaming streaming platform that Google announced where they're going to be using Debian and uh, Vulkan to uh, provide game streaming. And this is essentially the same thing through Microsoft and Sony to do content and game streaming uh, services and that kind of thing through Azure. So if they were to be using Linux in the back end to do this, which is probably likely because Linux is the most popular used server structure, period. Um, it's, even with Azure, it's one of the it's most popular thing that they that is run through their platform. Uh, it's possible that it could be a huge bonus to Linux. Now, the reason why is because the Google Stadia also being using Linux, and well, we already know for sure that they are, uh, in addition to if Microsoft and Sony do it, that could be a big pl- a big bonus to Linux gaming. But we don't really know what's happening outside of this blog post because this particular piece of news was released earlier today during recording. So I don't really know exactly any details because they didn't give any details, of course, because it's Microsoft Sony. But I think this is still pretty interesting. So if you'd like to learn more, I'll have a link to the blog post in the show notes below. Up next in the show and the last topic for this week is id software is going all in for Vulkan. Now, this is not necessarily Linux specific, but they are talking about you know having a lot of support for Vulkan, which means a lot of support for Proton, um, which is a lot of a, a lot of potential for Linux gaming. And they there's actually a conference that they went to. They had different talks about Doom and Proton and some other stuff. Is also like why they are switching to Vulkan as well as talking about Linux in general. Uh, one of the slides from that particular uh, talk actually had a slide that said why Linux, and the answer to that slide was it's not Windows, which I think is pretty funny and also very true because you know Windows. They are heavily going into Vulkan. So they, they're still going to be working on Linux. They're going to do Linux support because of the Vulkan. It automatically gives it. Uh, because with, with Proton, the thing about Doom 2016, which came out, it, it was one of the first games to have Proton support because of the heavy usage of Vulkan inside of Doom 2016. So by having that support with Vulkan, they made it possible for Proton to easily work with it. And that's what they're talking about with their uh, latest game engine, id tech 7 so uh, they say everything uses vulcan now and by that i mean everything the engine id studio even our helper tools everything that we have uses vulcan now and he said so at least for all future games that are being made for id tech 7 will be using vulcan and they should also by kind not necessarily default but steam said or valve said that in order to have uh, support for Steam Play and Proton. If you if you develop with Vul- Vulkan in mind, then you v- you don't really have to do much to make it work. So because they are all in on Vulkan, means any of their games or any of the games using their engine should work with Proton fairly easily, if not automatically. So that is awesome. There's also some news about uh, the uh, 
so we just talked about earlier Google Stadia. There's also some interesting news about Google Stadia, and that is uh, Google has kind of given some more information about what is going to be used, and most of it is open source. Not all of it, but most of it. And that is uh, libggp and some other stuff like, you know, the game itself wouldn't be open. But everything else would be. It'll be using Pulse Audio, Vulkan, libc++, glibc, and of course the Linux kernel. So doing this, they're making this combination of all these different uh, factors of Google Stadia having Debian, using Debian, having Vulkan as the main powering of this uh, of these of these games, this the game streaming, and having uh, companies like ID uh, all in on Vulkan makes the Linux gaming scene a much bigger player than people even look at it right now. Like it has a ton of potential to explode in the next couple years or so to be a massive platform. And uh, the, what's really interesting is that getting a game on Stadia itself re- requires. Uh, prototyping on existing Linux distributions like Ubuntu or Debian. So in order to get that to work and then having it work on Stadia, it also has to automatically work on Linux, which has a ton of potential, and I am looking forward to the future of Linux gaming, especially to get all the new, you know, latest and greatest AAA titles and whatever uh, coming to Linux. There's a there's actually potential with all these all these different factors combining together that it could happen fairly soon, and I can't wait for that. So if you'd like to learn more about the this particular article about id Software going Vulkan, I have a link to the Gaming on Linux uh, article about it in the show notes. Thanks for watching this episode of This Week in Linux. If you like what I do here on this show, please like that smash button and be sure to subscribe. If you'd like to support the Tux Digital channel, we have multiple ways to contribute via PayPal, Patreon, sponsors, and many others. But you can learn more by going to tuxdigital.com slash contribute. I should totally add the sponsors part to that page because right now it's not displaying it. I'll fix that next time. Anyway, you could also order the Linux is Everywhere t-shirt by going to tuxdigital.com slash Linux is Everywhere. Or if you're in Europe, you can go to tuxdigital.com slash Linux Everywhere EU for shipping inside of Europe. We also have ways um, that you can contribute without any cost to you by using our affiliate links. You can find links for places like Amazon, Private Internet Access, and many others by going to tuxdigital.com slash affiliates. If you'd like to submit some good news to the show, then you can visit the subreddit by going to thisweekinlinux.reddit.com. If you'd like some more podcasting goodness from me, then check out the latest episode of Destination Linux, as I'm a co-host of that show. And just a reminder that this show is live usually, well, I don't even know. Some This time it was live Sunday. Usually it's Saturday, but the past week or month it's not been live much. So let's just say it's usually live sometime. Next episode I'll probably have a better idea of when when I'm going to do it. So thanks again for watching. I'm Michael Tanel with Tux Digital. And as always, keep using, learning, and enjoying Linux.